welcome to the wicket. Yes, it's another episode of The Wicket as we chat through cricketing happenings in the Gulf, Asia and worldwide. I'm Brian Murgatroyd and with me as ever is uh, Arab News columnist John Pike and Arab News uh, cricket reporter Sebash Hamagain. Hello, gentlemen. Everything OK? Yep, all good. Yeah, Brian, everything ready and all set for the World Cups now. Well, on the show, we've got uh, plenty to talk about. We've got the latest from the ICC Cricket World Cup in India as we move towards the semi-finals. John Pike is there for us and there's plenty to chat about from the past week of action. We reflect on the Asian T20 World Cup qualifiers in Nepal, with the hosts and Oman qualifying for the main event to take place in the Caribbean and the USA next year. Subash Hamagain was on the spot for us, and he can talk us uh, through what was a fairly dramatic conclusion to the tournament. We also talk about the ongoing Bangladesh-Pakistan Women's One Day International Series in Mirpur, as both sides look for women's championship points towards qualification for the 2025 ICC Women's World Cup in India. We'll also talk about Meg Lanning's announcement that she's retiring from international cricket and discuss Paul Sterling's first assignment as full-time white ball captain of Ireland in Zimbabwe. So it's a bumper episode this time and let's get straight to it. Well, first of all, where else can we start but the ICC Cricket World Cup and three of the four semi-finalists are locked away with India unbeaten in their eight matches so far, South Africa and Australia confirmed and one of three from New Zealand, Pakistan and Afghanistan set to join them. Australia's qualification came about through an incredible come from behind win against Afghanistan in Mumbai. They were 91 for seven, chasing 292 before Glenn Maxwell defied cramp and dehydration to score an unbeaten 201 from only 128 balls and that included 21 fours and 10 sixes. He added 202 with his captain, Pat Cummins, as Australia won a seemingly unwinnable match. John, was it the greatest one-day international innings of all time, Glenn Maxwell? Well, if it's not, then one might ask what what might be. You mentioned the greatest ODI innings, a number of contenders uh, for that. There are those who've who've hit double hundreds, first one uh, being a woman, Belinda Clark, in 1997, Sashin, the first man in 2010, um, Rohit Sharma uh, did it three times. But in order to limit this, let's just talk about World Cup, I think, rather than ODI in general. Um, that gives us two other double centurions, uh, Martin Guptill and, and Chris Gale. I think it needs to be narrowed down a bit bit further. So let's limit it to a, a winning cause. Otherwise, I think we could be here uh, a very long time. Because one of the glorious uncertainties about um, about this and about cricket is that, you know, say Maxwell had been out for 180, would we have been talking about that as a glorious failure? Or would Australia's other tail-enders have finished off the task? We don't know. For me, the contenders uh, against Maxwell's innings would be Kapil Dev, who single-handedly rescued India in 1983. The rest is history, of course, so they went on to win, so that has to be up there. Aravinda de Silva scored a 100 in the 1996 World Cup final in a chase against you know, Warner McGraw in, in their prime. And then let's not forget Kevin O'Brien against England 
went mad, really, 100 off 50 balls in 2011, a record that stood until this year when it's been beaten by Aidan Makram and, of course, by, by Glenn Maxwell in an earlier match in, in Mumbai. As you said, at 91 for 7, Australia looked beaten. Maxwell's in at 49 for 4 after only 8.2 overs. First time that anybody's made a double century and chasing in a one-day International World Cup, let alone in World Cup, and the first by a non-opener. I think by any stretch of the imagination, it would have been an extraordinary innings if he'd been fit. Of course, he wasn't. And he did it pretty well on his own. Some outrageous stand and deliver innings. So I would say, um, yes, it would be some of the greatest ODI World Cup innings. And I think the other interesting aspect to it, we don't know yet what possibilities it's opened up as a result um, in terms of the matches that are yet to come and um, how they're going to play out. So extraordinary, extraordinary event. Uh, as the Pat Cummins, I think, probably summed it up uh, by saying it, it really was a miracle. And that's six wins in a row for Australia now, but they still have got some issues to answer, haven't they? Apart from Adam Zamper and Josh Hazelwood, their bowling has struggled at times. And the middle order pairing of Steve Smith, although he missed the Afghanistan match with an attack of vertigo, and uh, Manus Labuschagne has had difficulty in producing the type of dynamism required in modern one-day international cricket. It isn't all rosy in the garden for them, is it, John? No, it's not. And uh, for the reasons you mentioned, I've pointed out that the Smith and Labuschagne is, is, uh, pairing is, is an issue. It can get stodgy. In the middle, uh, there is uh, some teams have to rebuild after uh, weak starts. But the, as you mentioned, the dynamics of, uh, of the ODI game has now moved on. Sides are looking to um, put as many runs as they possibly can on the board. They, they don't, they're not cautious very long. They want to move um, scores along, trying to put um, the game out of the reach of the opposition. I think the, the other thing is is that they'll be buoyed by Maxwell's heroics. Can't rely on them, but they'll be certainly uh, lifted um, if it needed lifting. They have confidence in the camp. There are several players who haven't really fired. You can join the party. Green hasn't fired. Ed's only had really one innings. Stone is similarly. The thing about the Australians is that, as Shane Warne always used to say, never give up. They're tough and determined. They've got strength in depth. And they're very capable of making the tough decisions uh, when it comes down to the wire. So um, whilst it's not rosy, I, I, I think they, um, the chances of Australia getting things right are, are high. Stabash, we could be chatting about Afghanistan here and how they'd taken control of the chase for a semi-final spot if they'd won. And they really should have won too, shouldn't they? Because Glenn Maxwell was dropped badly on 33, long before he cut loose. It really was a chance lost for them, wasn't it? Especially as they, they'd played the perfect game up to that point with Ibrahim Zadran making his country's first ever Cricket World Cup 100. Yeah, as much as we are in awe of what Maxwell did, the unthinkable, the impossible, but there is equally big disappointment in the Afghanistan camp for what we have seen. I think and they've got themselves to blame for that in what happened after, after that drop catch. They had the game well within their grasp. They, and I think they got carried away with the start they got because the bowlers uh, continued what the batters did in the first innings. They were at the end, I think they were got they got so desperate for the wicket that they ended up giving everything away. I think if they had held on with tighter bowling instead of going for the wicket, I think they had plenty of runs to defend. But I think they got their planning wrong. And on the opposite side, we heard from Pat Cummins that they were mapping the game over by over with Maxwell not being able to walk. I think Cummins was going into his end, constantly talking, constantly planning. And they planned it 
very well on how to take the innings forward. And once they found Afghanistan down, they, Maxwell then turned out his gear, started hitting them all over the park. And just he stayed, stood and delivered well. And Afghanistan, I think they missed out on that. After that dolly drop from Muzib, Maxwell changed his gears. He just stayed there and started hitting. And I think with batting, I think Zadran's innings once again proved that they they have been doing brilliantly in the batting. And they have made some good saves. Even, even that day, I think the score was good enough to defend. But uh, they, they, in the bowling front, I think they didn't capitalize on the start, even the last over from Rashid, I think someone like Rashid Khan was played all over the world. I think much was expected from him, but Maxwell took a single, deceiving everyone in that over. If we if we can remember that over, they they, they could they would have thought of that Maxwell would be playing all six balls, but they since the strike twice and Afghanistan didn't calculate that. So had they won, I think the semi-final was all but confirmed from Afghanistan. But now they need to chase their equation and hope. Other games comes their way as well. And Ibrahim Zadran, once again, what a fantastic achievement. But it didn't come in the winning end. I think he should be, he'll be disappointed for that. And I think there was a classic game for us, for all to remember. But Afghanistan would be trying to forget that for before the next game. Well, Glenn Maxwell's incredible innings relegated the other major talking point of the past week to second place. That was the timed-out dismissal of Sri Lanka's Angelo Matthews against Bangladesh, the first time in Cricket World Cup history for such a dismissal. Matthews made it to the crease, but was then unable to face up within the two minutes stipulated in the ICC playing conditions because his helmet strap broke as he tried to adjust it. It seems he didn't ask the umpire's permission to change the helmet, and uh, Bangladesh captain Shakib Al-Hassan was then informed by one of his teammates, we don't know who that was, that uh, the fact Matthews hadn't been ready to face within those two minutes meant he could be timed out. Shakib appealed, was given the chance to withdraw the appeal by the umpires, but went through with it, and so Matthews was on his way without facing a ball. It was the correct dismissal under the umpire's interpretation of the playing conditions, but Matthews didn't hold back in his post-match media conference, slamming Shakib and Bangladesh fast bowling coach Alan Donald, the former South Africa fast bowler, later did an interview in which he said he was deeply troubled by Shakib's actions. Shakib said he wanted to do anything he could to help his side win, and he was obviously conscious of the ICC Champions Trophy qualification, as only the top eight sides in this tournament will play in that event in Pakistan in 2025. But how does this dismissal uh, sit with you, uh, gentlemen? I'll ask you both. John, first of all, what do you think? I think it does paint cricket in a more than ridiculous light. You'll know of my abhorrence of systematic time-wasting. I'm affronted when told we should be quiet because we're being entertained. I was there when the event took place, square on, and I was pretty mystified. It never occurred to me that uh, Matthews was um, doing any deliberate time-wasting. And if I was Angelo, I'd want to ask how many batters are ready within the stipulated time, um, given that this is all recorded, along with the names of those who are not. And then given that Shakib would not withdraw the appeal, I think, as you mentioned, the umpires were left with little choice, but it's a pretty unsavoury piece of behaviour. And um, Shakib, the villain of the piece, a very fine player, of course, for a long time, um, has considerable form in controversies, and some of which have been with the Sri Lankans. It seems to be no coincidence, really. He was seemed to be shipped home pretty quickly with his broken finger, uh, and I didn't notice that that seemed to hamper his batting in his 80-odd, which was instrumental in, in uh, Bangladesh's victory. So I think this uh, thing could have been 
could have been avoided from several different angles. And I don't think it gives cricket a particularly enhanced image. Sebash, surely this playing condition is for time-wasting, which is what John just mentioned there. And a player shouldn't be punished under it for a legitimate issue such as this, should he? Yeah, legitimate issue. But I think he failed to report the problem to the umpire. Had he reported about the strap coming up, the issue never would have escalated. But once the appeal was made, the umpire had no option but to send him off. And Matthew is right in his case that his strap came off unknowingly that he didn't intend to do that. But uh, he was just trying to get a replacement. And I didn't think uh, was looking at the match that uh, it was for any time wasting an advantage. But uh, he should also be aware that he was facing the first ball. He could have gone on to gone on with that uh, broken helmet because he was facing Saki Balasan, who's a spin bowler. And maybe after that ball, he could have asked for the helmet, but uh, he didn't have any thoughts about timed out or because he was not wasting any time. And I think just like dismissal of Josh Butler subconsciously leaving the crease in that famous 2014 Sinanaike Mangat, which Matthews approved of, Saki held on to appeal, uh, I, th- I think twice the umpire asked him. So he still held on. And... We can say that uh, what's written in the laws, I think the dismissal it was fair, but uh, days like this, I think it's not good for the gentleman spirit of the game. Yes, it's interesting you mentioned about that uh, dismissal of uh, Joss Butler given out, uh, run out at the non-striker's end when uh, when Matthews very much approved of that uh, situation. You could say it's the bite a bit there, but John, I guess, coming back to what you were saying, it does seem to paint cricket in a faintly ridiculous light, doesn't it, given the amount of time that's lost or wasted routinely in international cricket in particular, especially in test matches, you look at uh, how many tests have the extra half hour at the end of a day and uh, we still don't see the minimum number of overs bowled even with that. And uh, spectators are short change. They have to witness endless changes of gloves, sight screen adjustments, drinks run out and uh, endless chats between batters and bowlers and captains. Uh, and uh, none of those seem to be penalised uh, to, to the extent uh, that, that we're seeing here. Oh, that's very true. They, they're, they're not... The, uh, the World Cup um, regulations say that the batter has to be in place within two minutes, whereas you know, the laws of the game say three minutes. We understand why it might be um, shorter um, because of you know, timescales and um, need to break for advertisements and so on. But um, uh, it's, it's odd that there should be um, that, that discrepancy between uh, an ICC tournament and the uh, stipulation made in the, um, in the laws of the game. Let's reflect on England's demise as defending champions. They uh, brought to an end a run of five straight losses by beating the Netherlands. Uh, But uh, it was a match you attended, I think, John, but it wasn't all sweetness and light for England despite that victory, was it? The captain and coach were criticised for not fronting up to the pre-match media conference as the fielding coach was wheeled out instead. And although Ben Stokes scored a brilliant 100 against the Dutch, there's a view that with England already knocked out, he should be back in the UK having surgery on his dodgy knee to ensure he's fit for the test tour to India in January. John, what do you think? It did seem a disrespectful decision to parade the poor fielding coach, um, particularly given the, the distance that the stadium is out of Pune. It's not really in Pune. And the difficulty of accessing it once you get anywhere near it it sort of suggested a development of a siege mentality. On the other hand, you could argue that um, the space worked for Ben and, and several others in, in the team in, in achieving that victory. I think suggesting that he, he, he should go home misunderstands Ben Stokes, and I think it misses the point. 
Stokes is a man of integrity. He doesn't leave people in the lurch. And by scoring that 100, by being there, he's given the team a lifeline, a confidence boost. The lack of celebration on getting 100 um, was marked, reflects the, the, um, the status of the, the, the team, the morale at the moment. Let's not forget, I think he missed the first three matches, um, having announced late that he was going to be joining the squad. Is now approaching some form, so why not play him? Worked. Um, the operations only delayed by a few days. I think he turned a you know a 250, 250 scoreline into about 340. And the first test is January the 25th. Now that's over two months away. They've got a training camp I think in Dubai before that. I'm not in the camp that said he should have gone home. Well, as we record this podcast, we know. The teams for the second semi-final are confirmed. That's Team 2 against Team 3, and that's South Africa versus Australia in Kolkata on Thursday, November the 16th. India is waiting in the other semi-final in Mumbai the previous day, Wednesday, November the 15th, and they will play one of New Zealand, Pakistan or Afghanistan. All three are locked on eight points with one match each to play. New Zealand up against Sri Lanka, Afghanistan going head-to-head with South Africa and Pakistan playing England. Now, New Zealand have the best net run rate of the three going into the last round of matches. But I just wonder, is it advantage Pakistan, given they'll play last of those three sides and so they'll know exactly what they have to do? Sebash, what do you think? Yeah, indeed, it's a huge, huge advantage for Pakistan and given the performance against New Zealand, I don't see why they won't take a fourth spot. Uh, Fakhar Zaman is given a new life for the top batting order. I think he's rediscovered himself and he's been firing high. And the opportunity to play India in the semi-finals, I think that's even more big bonus. They have big opportunity. They have a chance to put every sad stories from this edition behind from here and they'll give everything. Babur Azam, I think this has been a... Mixed emotions for him is the team has been played out. He had been struggling for runs. He has some runs with some half centuries, but his team hasn't been able to cross the line quite often. And if they can make it from here, I think it's a new a new phase for Pakistan to go into the same finals, play India, use use opportunity. And for New Zealand, I think they made 400 last match, but uh, they're struggling for wins. I think uh, after starting tournament. In that way, uh, nobody thought that they would be one missing out, but it looks like another one in the line for New Zealand. They're going to struggle. And for Afghanistan, I think Australia game have re- really hit them hard. It's tough for them to beat South Africa. Look at the run rate. Uh, I think Afghanistan are quite out from here, but Pakistan, I think they'll be needing favor from Sri Lanka as well, and uh, Sri Lanka New Zealand match. But uh, run rate or no. I think Pakistan still has the chance and the fact that they're playing at the end, I think that that, that would be a very big advantage. John, uh, which team do you think is going to join uh, India, South Africa and Australia in the semi-finals? I'm going to stick with New Zealand. I know they've been hit badly by injuries. I looked at the um, team that uh, put out against Pakistan and I thought uh, bowling looks looks uh, rather weaker than it uh, has been in the past. I think they've got every incentive to, to beat Sri Lanka and I expect them to do so. And then, of course, it's a matter of whether Pakistan sufficiently increased their run rate against uh, an England side, which may just have a, a point, another point to prove. So I'm sticking with, with New Zealand. If it were to be Pakistan, 
then do we think that that semi-final would be played in Mumbai? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? You're suggesting it would be moved at the last minute to Ahmedabad, are you? Or Kolkata. Talk I've heard is that you switch the, the venues. I think this is, uh, <laughs> this is one for next week. Yes, uh, the World Cup running towards a conclusion and a very exciting one too. And uh, that's a relief because uh, it was a very slow start to the tournament, but it's hotting up very nicely now. Now then for the Asian T20 World Cup qualifier, the tournament in Nepal that wrapped up on Sunday the 5th of November. Oman and Nepal are the two sides from the eight who took part that will be heading to the Caribbean and the USA after they won their semifinals against Bahrain and the UAE respectively. Oman were unbeaten throughout the tournament and beat the hosts twice, once in the final when the match went to a super over, while Nepal had to do things the hard way After losing to Oman in the group stages, they had to play the previously unbeaten UAE, who had beaten them in the final of the T20 Tri-Series that preceded the tournament. Oman got to the final of the qualifier by thrashing Bahrain by 10 wickets, while Nepal comfortably beat the UAE by 8 wickets in front of a massive crowd in Mopani. Then in the final, Nepal made a highly impressive 184 for 6, led by uh, captain Rohit Padel with an unbeaten 52 from 37 balls and 54 from only 25 deliveries from Gulshan Jhar. Throw in 20 from six balls from Karan KC and Nepal would have been feeling confident at the halfway stage. But back came Oman and with uh, Mohamed Nadim scoring an unbeaten 24 from nine balls, they looked certain to win with eight needed from the final over. But up stepped Sandeep Lamichan. And he wove his magic, uh, and when Fire's butt was run out off the final ball, we were left with a super over to decide the title. There was no fairy tale success for Nepal, though, in front of their own crowd. Nazim Kushi thrashed three sixes as Oman made 21 from their super over, and Nepal could manage only 10 in reply. A terrific tournament then. Sebash was there. Sebash, what's the overwhelming emotion in Nepalese cricket at the moment? Is it joy at qualification or disappointment at not securing the title? Joy, Brian. Absolute joy in cricketing fraternity. I think 3rd of November, we saw people in the streets celebrating that historic win not just in Kathmandu, but all over the country. And sadly, that midnight, we had an earthquake in western part of Nepal, which took hundreds of lives. And same night, the celebration torn down from every corner and can themselves placed half of the proceeds from the final would go to the victims. And the result of final, I think it was a bonus if it had come our way. But uh, the way match went on, I think there's no disappointment. The crowd were fully entertained. We had first ever super over in our history. And... I think uh, we missed out on bowling. I think Abhinas Bora, he is our death bowler, but I think he missed out on his length. And three full toss in Super Over, I think that was deserving to be punished. And Nassim Kusi did just that. Oman, they, they were superb throughout the tournament and they were deserving winners. But at the end of the day, I think Nepal crowd enjoyed the good cricket. They are going to the World Cup. And after two heartbreaks, I think two successive heartbreaks, I think we deserved a World Cup, and that's that, That's given us a com- complete joy. Well, Sebastian, uh, the organisers expected Nepal to top their group, of course, and so when they lost in the group stage uh, to Oman, it meant that uh, Mopani was forced to stage the Nepal semi-final against the UAE, and it required some 11th hour upgrading to get it ready. Did everything pass off successfully? I know you took some amazing photographs of uh, <laughs> the crowds there, and, and the crowds really were astonishing, weren't they? Yeah, Brian, uh, even 
Kundu Bulbani hosted the Tri-Series just a week ago. It was a race against the time for organizer once Nepal lost the final game. I think uh, Nepal didn't have any matches and there were minimal facilities in Bulbani. So there are two grounds in Bulbani. So the one that's being played actually is supposed to be a training ground. There is no any spectator seats. So it's just a barren hill that the spectators are, are sitting right now. So the one with the stands is still not finished construction. I think it's been a decade and a half and the government has not been able to complete its construction. So the Mulpani ground that we are playing is actually a training venue and uh, with a good, good pitches recently. So we've got a curator from Bangladesh who has been working since the ACC Premier Cup last year and uh, the, the playing field is quite nice. But for spectators, I think that, that that's why the uh, ticket was capped to 3500 for online sales there is no physical tickets for that day but even the online tickets got sold out within the hours and there was no control on how the crowd came in because there was uh, we I, I i knew this would happen so i reached the ground 4 hours before the match began and still we had people lining around there was a huge security, but uh, I don't know the hills. You you can you you can uh, put barriers in the road, but you cannot stop people coming out down from the hills. And there were five to six times more than thirty five hundred, and everyone wanted to go be part of that historic match. You can see that more people were out of the ground than inside it, and some amazing photos of people watching from the rooftop hills roadside, trying to get a glimpse of the action and. At the end of the day, Nepal's qualification topped everything off and it was a moment of celebration for us. Tough on the UAE, though. Uh, you'd have to say they won every group game but just failed in the one game that mattered. Is that just the nature of associate cricket uh, and everyone should just accept it? Or, or should there be some other form of qualification that rewards teams for performances over a longer period of time? Uh, I think it's a tough one for UAE to digest for sure. I think they came in, in unbeaten in the semi-finals and one bad game and that has cost them the World Cup berth. Similar to what Nepal went through in the last edition, then UAE went on to qualify defeating the unbeaten Nepal back then. And that also tells a lot about the associate cricket and how things go here, the margin of error is criminally low while the, the test teams, let's say, they are qualified on the basis of ranking and teams beneath, I think they struggle, they come through a lot of qualification phases and one bad game and that's the end of it. I think that's uh, that, that's a bit harsh on these teams because they've spent a lot of time just in the qualifying phases and they have nothing to show for at the end. So I think... Uh, there should be a little thought put on this. I think uh, there's a seat. I think they should not be given these shootouts that one game decides everything. So for me, I'd like to see a round-robin tournament for the final round of the qualifiers. This way, uh, you can have a bad day and still overturn those matches in the f future games. And what about the timing of the tournament, uh, Sebash, taking place in the middle of the Cricket World Cup? It meant very little coverage, obviously, of a terrific event outside of Nepal. What are your views on that? Surprising, Brian. The, the tournament class with the ICC ODI World Cup, I think the biggest ICC event there is. And to put things into perspective, Nepal, UE and Oman were all involved in the World Cup qualifiers This that's happening in India. So we were in Zimbabwe. We knew there's World Cup qualifiers, T20 World Cup qualifiers and ODI World Cup at the same time. So had any one of these teams went on to qualify for that World Cup, what would have been? So I think ICC could have put this tournament on a different date, I think uh, before or after, so that there could be a 
global eyes on this game. Even if the teams they have not playing the ODI World Cup, I think they would have liked to see the T20 World Cup qualifiers and the type of viewership there is in the past matches, especially and the quality of cricket these teams are offering in recent years. I think the world needs to see that you're not helping spread the game globally if you class these events with the premier ones. Uh, even in Nepal, I think this huge cricket craze and people are in two minds whether to go into the matches or to sit back home and watch the World Cup. So I think uh, the scheduling of this tournament was pretty harsh on the associates and that has been for the long, for a long time now. John Oman were worthy winners. You, you have to say that. They're an experienced side. Some would call them an ageing side. Can you see them making an impression in the T20 World Cup next year? Well, first of all, I'd just like to endorse what uh, Splash has been saying about the timing of that tournament and also about the, the unfortunate uh, fact that in this case it's UAE, you haven't qualified, but it could have been one of the other, other two. I think all of them are worthy of a place in, 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 uh, in World, World Cup competition. Um, Oman, I think they had a good part of the draw uh, against uh, Bahrain. That I don't think should be overlooked. Are they ageing? Well, the average age, I think, from what I can make out, is about 32, which is not that much different from, say, England or Australia or, or India. So it's a seasoned one. They're coached, of course, by Dulip Mendes, who himself, I think, is almost 70. They've shown they're capable of beating any associate nation. But a full member in the World Cup, I think that's a, that's a big ask. We've got, what, 20 teams uh, coming up with in five groups. Two teams from each group will advance to the Super 8. Last time, Oman won one, I think, match in their group. Probably depends upon who else is in their group. It's a really, really tough call to think that they're going to make um, any greater impression than they did last time. But then, I downplayed the chances um, for this qualifying tournament, so um, we shall see. Let's turn now to women's cricket and Bangladesh against Pakistan. As we record this podcast, the one-day international series between those two teams is set up fantastically at 1-1 with a decider on Friday the 10th of November. Of the two matches played at the time that we're recording this podcast on November the 4th and 7th, Pakistan won the first one by five wickets after a captain's effort by Nidadar with the ball and then the bat. She took three for 10 to help bowl out Bangladesh for just 81 before scoring an unbeaten 35 to either side home. But in the second match, we had a super over with Bangladesh winning that, chasing Pakistan's score of seven off the final ball. That was after Pakistan collapsed when seemingly on course to win. They were 153 for six in the 47th over, chasing 170, but uh, fell over when the heat came on. Bangladesh's uh, Nigar Sultana was player of the match in that second game with 54. That, incidentally, is the only half century of the series so far. A reminder that these matches mean points in the ICC's Women's Championship. It's a 10-team series, and only the top five, plus hosts India, secure direct entry to the next Women's Cricket World Cup in 2025, while those below the line will have to battle it out in the qualifier. Pakistan started the series in fourth, although they've played more matches than most of the sides below them, while Bangladesh began in eighth. So there's more than just a series win to play for in that final match on November the 10th. Shabash, what have you made of the series so far? Uh, Bangladesh in the first match, uh, they looked like they were still in the T20 mode, lots of poor shots and no surprise that they got bundled in 32nd over and uh, they've improved in the second month, but I think there's still a work in progress. 
And second match, I think Pakistan could have been 2-0 up uh, even with the collapse that we saw. But Nasa Sandhu, I think she had a match to forget. Uh, her poor running in the penalty bit ball resulted in the run out. And the match went to super over. And she was unlucky that she got it for boundaries in the first and last ball, defending just seven runs. They had match in the grass even in the super over until the final ball. So I think Pakistan, they need to work hard if they want to improve their ICC Women's Championship table state. They need to get that two points in the final match. They have a point per match ratio. They're going to play New Zealand next in New Zealand. I think that's going to be a very tough situation for them. Bangladesh, I think they're improving. They are not eyeing for that World Cup birth right away, but they're preparing for the qualifiers. But Pakistan, I think they would not be happy with the result and they would want to finish this on a high and get something away from Bangladesh after losing the T20I series. Just as uh, we were about to record our podcast for this week, the news came through from Australia about uh, the retirement from international cricket of Meg Lanning, an amazing servant of Australian cricket, Uh, 31 years of age, she's been playing international cricket for 13 years, a multiple World Cup winner in both uh, ODIs and T20s. And, uh, of course, also a Commonwealth gold, gold medalist, a Commonwealth Games gold medalist as well. Uh, A list of achievements as long as your arm, really outstanding cricketer, a wonderful leader and a wonderful human being as well. And, uh, John, it's, it's been a bit of a bolt out of the blue, this one, hasn't it? Yes, it has. She said that it's been a difficult uh, decision for, for her to make. She said she'd tried to talk herself out of it, but felt that she's ready for something new and that she didn't feel that she got anything um, really left to achieve on the, on the national stage. She says that she can't be half in or half out with anything, and that's uh, fundamental to, to the decision. But a fine, fine um, cricketer, uh, with a fantastic record. And um, uh, it's difficult to say we won't see her likes again um, because Australia have got some um, some other extremely good cricketers. But um, uh, she certainly uh, put women's cricket internationally um, in a spotlight that uh, it didn't have before. Away from international cricket, the fixtures for the UAE's own T20 league, the ILT20, were announced on Friday the 3rd of November. The tournament gets underway on Friday the 19th of January with defending champions the Gulf Giants travelling to the Sharjah Warriors, while the runners-up from Season 1, the Desert Vipers, open their campaign against the Abu Dhabi Knight Riders in Dubai two days later on Sunday the 21st of January. The round-robin stage spans 24 days and features 30 matches, with uh, six days having two matches on them. And after that group stage, the top four sides again progress through with one playing two in a qualifier for a direct route to the final before um, qualifier three plays qualifier four in an eliminator. The loser of uh, the first match, one against two, plays the winner of the eliminator for the second spot in the final. And that final is due to take place on Saturday, the 17th of February. So the whole tournament's wrapped up inside a month. This week, the league also announced a schools tournament and the push really is on to try and ensure that awareness and attendances are far in excess of what was seen in season one. So the fixtures are out, John. It's uh, tangible now, I guess, for the second season of the ILT20. Uh, What do you make of it all? I think it's going to be a long haul to generate um, attendance. 
And there are three Pakistanis who are going to, to play. If that news gets properly put out, then it may attract some, some more locals. Of course, there are no Indians for uh, reasons that are very well known to us. Uh, we have seen low attendances at some World Cup matches if there's no local involvement. So I don't think it's just limited to IAT20. Attendance is not necessarily the issue, but I think developing local talent is. I think that the uh, Emirates Cricket Board and uh, UA Cricket in general are grasping this. So the, the school's tournament is uh, a step in, in the right direction. But it will take a while to, uh, to promote attendance, um, even greater than uh, we saw last year. One more news line for you before we go. And Paul Sterling's first matches as Ireland's full-time white ball captain will be in Zimbabwe next month when he leads his side in two three-match series, one in the 2020 internationals and one in the one-day internationals. Ireland will hold a warm-weather camp in Spain at the end of this month before heading to Zimbabwe on December the 1st. The T20 series will come first with the opening match on December the 7th, and that match will be played under the recently installed lights at the Harare Sports Club. All international matches on the tour will be played there. So uh, that's uh, something to look forward to in December when uh, Zimbabwe host Ireland. Looking ahead then to what the next week has in store, the ICC Cricket World Cup will be coming to a conclusion. We'll uh, look forward to uh, those closing stages in our next podcast. We'll reflect too in our next podcast as well about the conclusion of the Bangladesh-Pakistan Women's One Day International Series. And of course, we'll bring you the best of the news from around the cricketing world. But uh, what are you two looking forward to uh, over the next week then, uh, John, first of all? Well, apart from the obvious, the um, conclusion of uh, the 2023 World Cup, a bit left field for me. Um, I'm going to, whilst I'm in Pune, I'm going to visit um, the Blades of Glory Cricket Museum, which uh, is reputedly the largest in the world. I've got uh, I've got that to, to look forward to and to see. Um, I think there are 2,000-odd artefacts on show, and uh, apparently there are another 50,000 uh, in various upstairs room that uh, the public haven't been um, allowed to see. So um, that's um, that'll be a first for me. And Sebastian, uh, I bet you can't match that. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure if anyone else could match the, what Zon's going having through. I'll be back sitting home trying to enjoy the semi-finals of the World Cup. I think uh, that's all there is for us now that the qualifiers is all done here. Yes, you deserve a break, uh, Sebastian, after uh, what you've been through with the the T20 Tri-Series and then the World Cup uh, qualifier as well. That's uh, been quite a haul for you over in uh, Nepal. Well, that's it for another episode of The Wicket. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back soon with more cricket chat from the Gulf region, Asia and worldwide. Thanks to John Thanks to uh, Sebash. And please don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on what you've heard wherever you get your podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback and let us know if there's anything you'd like us to feature in future episodes. For now, though, this is Brian Murgatroyd along with John Pike and Sebash. I'm again saying thanks so much for listening and we look forward to your company next time. <laughs>